uh, have been tasked to read you another half chapter of names. If they don't go as well as planned, just remember that on Easter Sunday, Pastor Tom told someone they were going to be on the, show, the hoarder show one day in front of a whole group of new people. So if I mess a name up, just remember that. <laughs> Laugh at that and not me. But so glad you're here. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, only a few chapters left. And it, as you, if you remember in chapter 9, the people of God here of Israel in Jerusalem come together and start confessing sins of their fathers. What had led the people of Israel to be dispersed among the lands of Assyria and Babylon and uh, not living in the promised land uh, that had been promised so many years before. That was chapter 9. And then we come to this chapter here. I want to start reading in verse 38 as right on the heels of this massive, massive corporate confession. Verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mishamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Henadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kilida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beniu. The chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, An remember Pastor Tom last week, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazur, Mesh, Azabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pilatai, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hanaya, Hasub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabanah, Mashea, Ahaya, Hanun, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Banah. And what is always striking to me as a list of names in the Old Testament is that it is a list of full of people that will especially in this chapter, will never be mentioned again in all of Scripture. For one period of time, this specific group of people had their names written on sealed documents, a covenant with one another, with God. And it is a snapshot of the people who banded together to promise to pursue God with everything they have. And we'll see 
what they're promising to fill, fulfill in a little bit on the chapter here. To not forsake the Sabbath, to not intermarry with people who do not worship the Lord, and to support the ministry of the Lord upon uh, revisiting the covenant of Moses. But, but what is interesting about this is we are seeing specific people in a specific place come together by name in a known way surrounding commitments to each other and to the Lord. They knew who was in and a part of them and who was not. And what's interesting about this is uh, it plays out in the New Testament as well and, and the New Testament period from uh, the time with Jesus and his apostles until, uh, and then the apostles' writings until now. And what we see that is what today we call church membership, even though they may have called it something different. We know who was with Jesus and Jesus knew who was in and who was out with him. We can see in places in the book of Acts where the apostles began to keep numbers and names of who was saved in chapters 1 and 2. When the believers, again, in later in chapter 2, 44 through 45, believers would share everything among one another. It didn't say they shared everything with everyone. They had a specific group of people that they knew by name to share with. In Acts 6, the widows in the church rolls were being neglected, and they knew that because they knew which widows they were responsible for. And later in the New Testament, when elders and deacons were begin to be placed over churches in the New Testament, elders needed to know who they were pastorally responsible for, and deacons needed to know who was within their midst that they were instructed to care for. Membership can, yes, I think be seen here in the Old Testament among other places and in the New Testament. And church membership is the main way that we know who is a part of us. Or who's a part of us and who's not. Who has gone through the process to, in a way, marry the church and stop dating her. Who has become the responsibility of the elders to shepherd and love and the other members to disciple and train and encourage, and who is simply watching from within. Excuse me. One of the best ways, I think, to illustrate that is uh, marriage. When you get married, you know exactly who you're married to, I hope. You remember that. There's no question who you've made a lifelong covenant with. Uh, you, there's no question who uh, you're relaxing with at night, if it's whether it's a favorite TV show or for the smart ones in the room, you, your books that you just love. You know who is in your household. But say, for some reason, some squatters moved in. I don't know how they got in, just the back door, we'll say. And there they are, they hang out, you can't kick them out. But after six to eight months that go by, they start to say, you know, I really love the color of these walls. And you watch that show, that's really funny. I really appreciate what you do with your kids. I agree 100% with that. And since we've been here for so long, I think we're just one of, I'm one of you. I mean, we could even be, we could just act like we're all married and you'd say, there's no way. I know exactly who I'm married to. I know exactly who my children are and who belongs in this house and who doesn't. Who I, as a parent, am responsible for or as a spouse, I am responsible for. 
And I think in the same way, church membership is the way that the church, elders and members, all of us know who we are pouring our lives into, who we are laying our lives out for, who is the church to surround and counsel and disciple, not just the elders, okay? All of us as members, who are we to love, disciple, and love throughout our lives here? Why is it painful when someone who is promised and covenanted in membership who just disappears overnight to another church, why is that as painful, just as painful as a divorce? And why is there such joy when a brother or sister repents and heals relationships and conflicts in that is because we promised to one another through that membership promise that we will live this life pursuing Christ together. My second point coming from the rest of the chapter that we'll read together is uh, that members care about the church, its mission, and its people. So let's read on verse 28, right to the end. It'll go by faster. There's less names. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants. Isn't that a great way to just summarize everything? We'll start that off the next time. And all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into the curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the snow bread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the, the Levites shall bring up the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers 
where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. And if so, if church membership is important and knowing who is a part of our local church, I do think that it is, uh, we must see that this text, uh, that we should care for one another and the mission that we've committed to and its people. And we see here the people of God coming together around a covenant between them and the Lord. They would do mainly four things. They would follow the law of Moses. They would not marry unbelievers from the foreign lands. They would follow the Sabbath and they would tithe to the temple to support the ministry of God in that city. And to say quickly, we can take away good things from this passage. Right? We should know that we should care very deeply about how God has commanded us to live Summarized most greatly in the passage of Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We should desire to read our scriptures and see how it is that God has taught us to live in this time before we are taken home to him one day. It's good to work through how we trust and we rest in the Lord. It's not essential to me if you have come to the conviction of the Spirit that you will take off one day every week, whether it's Sunday or it's Monday, and you have been committed to that, and your rest uh, is then, and you trust the Lord to the rest of the week. And I say that as someone who does that, and Pastor Tom does that. Okay, If that's not where you are, that's okay. If you are in the place where you think Jesus is your eternal rest, and you're going to work through this life looking forward to the eternal rest... If you are there, as long as we are all trusting in the Lord for his provisions and his work, and we are not thinking that we are doing it all ourselves, and we are looking to him to provide. And it's important to give back to the Lord financially with our uh, physical gifts and our financial gifts that he's given us, to put those back in his hands from our first fruits, to trust the Lord with our finances. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, that we would be a cheerful giver, not giving as if someone had a whip to our back, that we would support God's ministry here in Springbrook Church with our time and our money because it's all, it is all God's already, right? And we trust him with his provisions in our lives and this church Secondly, we should be as passionate about the mission of this church if you become members, just as the believers are as passionate about God's mission here in our chapter, that we would burn with passion to love Jesus, to love people, and to help people love Jesus. As we've got written on doors and signs, that has fallen down, by the way, I gotta put that back up. Darn win. Whether that is through evangelism or through the discipleship of this church, we should pray that God would do anything he has to in our lives, that we would link arms with one another and fulfill that mission that we have agreed to as we have bought into this here, in this city, in this county, that we would help people love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. Just as we see this body of believers do long ago come together around that common purpose and goal we, we must also do today in Christ. 
How easy is it to come to a worship service and then say we've done what we've needed to do and to jump out of here as quick as we can after a service and we'll say, see you again next Sunday. But if we are members, married in covenant with one another here in this church, we can't do that if we're never with each other, working with another. Don't hear me say you can't take a vacation or you can't miss a Sunday or Jesus doesn't love you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have all come together to be in the trenches together in this life around a single mission to pursue Christ together. My final point, as I try to move through this quickly, is I think this point that underscores the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is that God is a God who forgives. I think a point that we should pause and reflect on is that these two books, that to even make it possible, is that God forgives. And if you remember, what they've just confessed is that they have done everything as a people, historically, everything they could possibly do to get dispersed from the promised land that was specifically chosen and given to them, they did it. And after their sins were heaped up and collected, God sent them away for 70 years. But after they have come and humbled themselves and repented, God forgave them. Our God is a God who forgives. One of the main narratives of all of Scripture is that he forgives. If you read nearly every chapter of the book of the Bible, you will see a situation of a human being who has done something so egregious they deserve to be just struck down right there. And yet they're forgiven if they humble themselves and repent. And we especially see this in the life of Christ. The Son of God, who spent his entire earthly life setting the tone, or I should say more accurately, continuing the tone of forgiveness in this life. In Luke chapter 5, Luke writes about a group of men who knew Jesus was in town, teaching in someone's home, and they had a man who was paralyzed, who couldn't move by himself, and what did they do? They climbed up on some random person's house. They destroyed their roof, found a bed to lower him down into and say, uh, please forgive this man. And what did Jesus do? Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And up he goes, back out of the house. He's in the business of forgiving. He not only forgave the sins of the man lowered through the roof. In Luke 7, Jesus forgave the sins of a woman who, if you remember, cried on Jesus' feet and then used her own hair to wipe his feet clean. Jesus forgave her sins. Possibly the most famous passage. We read it last week. We're going to read it again because it is just simply amazing the way someone so vile and evil could be hung upon a cross, yet he is still within the realm of forgiveness. In Luke chapter 23, Verse 35, this is Jesus on the cross. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved the others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription put over him. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Could you imagine being so bitter about 
what you've done in your life that you could sit with your dying breath cursing at the Son of God. But the other man rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus forgives sins. And he didn't stop while he was on this earth. He continued, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, chapter 3, with every spiritual blessing in heaven, heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, I'll just summarize that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus forgives sins. Just as God did with the ancient Jews, he is still doing it today. All of us who were spiritually dispersed from him, he has called us home through faith in Christ. That is Romans 10 say, if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What this means for us is that we have eternal peace. Eternal peace. Not one day we'll have peace, but we have eternal peace I think it's one of the most, as I was thinking about this, thinking about parenting. And one of the most interesting thing about parenting is our role in the discipline of our child. That when, when discipline is required, there's a break in that relationship between parent and child. There's either disappointment or anger or both in the parent when the child acts out. And for however long that lasts, either for a moment or often, sometimes years, that relationship is different. It's fractured. That feeling of peace and joy that you have between you and your child are gone until there's repentance and forgiveness. And then peace is restored. Though in the view of the father, there's only hatred of sin and the rejection of the gift of his son that is then changed in a softened heart and faith in Christ. And I think that should matter to us here in this room. If I could choose one superpower, my, my seven-year-old always asks, what would you do? Could you fly or would you breathe underwater? I forget. But it would be that, that you would feel the peace of God upon your life, knowing that the only being in the entire existence of existing, who could just end everything we know with a snap of a finger, loves you and is at peace with you because of something he did with his son. He now loves you forevermore, right? It's not that he only erased the sins of the past so that you're good then, and now we got to keep working so that uh, we keep the angry God at bay. It's that no matter what happens from today 
backwards or today forwards, you are forgiven. He sees you as he sees Jesus even. You don't have to earn or prove anything. And I'm talking about the kind of peace where you could live in a cardboard box out in the rain and the snow coming this week and have a joyful peace because you know that this life that may be full and I know is full of sorrows is but a mist that vanishes at dawn, but we are at peace eternally with the being that holds everything together. You're at peace. Through faith in Jesus, God loves you for all eternity. You're no longer outsiders from God. You're loved and cherished by the creator because of what the love of Jesus hanging on the cross. And Jesus, the Father, the Father views you as he views Jesus, the only perfect one. God is a God who forgives. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Even in the gray rain, you are good. Even in the face of our sin, you forgive and you love. Even when we are turned and, and trying to pull and run away, you are there steady and steadfast and long-suffering and loving and peaceful and gracious. And we could go on and on and on. Holy Spirit, move in us this morning that we would feel the joy that we would be joyful if only because you love us. You love us. If we are in your son, we are in the church. Eternally we are set. You have us. You are building a house for us in heaven. We, there's nowhere else for us to go except to your side when we depart from this world. No, Jesus, thank you for coming here, being humiliated from from point one, for nine months being locked in a human body until you were birthed and then growing and going through the process of being a baby and a teenager and a young adult and all these things that you submitted yourself to, we thank you that you did that. All the way to death on a cross for every one of your chosen believers. For everyone that would be your church, you did it for. And I thank you for it because we do. We deserve the opposite, and that is your grace. We deserve the opposite. We love you, Lord. Help us now as we uh, turn our hearts to the communion table and to the worship in, in song. Help us, Lord. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.